0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, February the 23rd, 2023. One word that is coming into fashion, which I think is an intriguing word, word and reflects our own sense of our impending doom, is a word called polycrisis, that we're living in an age of many different crises which have all come together. The World Economic Forum, which is often setting and I think following fashions, have embraced the idea of a polycrisis. I don't think they're necessarily particularly thrilled about it, but they're certainly interpreting the world in the context of this Polycrisis of politics and economics and the environment and information and, of course, of perpetual war. Adam Tooze, the Columbia University economist who's been on the show, also writes about it. This idea of crisis, of permanent crisis and world crisis, of course, isn't new. Winston Churchill uh, wrote a a very famous book on the world crisis between 1911 and 1911. 18 which is still in print so the idea of the world being in crisis isn't new that doesn't mean it isn't in crisis and it doesn't mean that the idea of a polycrisis is redundant either Um, my guest today certainly thinks that there is a world crisis and that is uh part of the title of his book the world crisis and international law the knowledge economy and the battle for the future uh, Paul Stefan teaches law for many years at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, one of the nicest campuses, uh, not just in America, in the world. And he's, and he's one of the world's leading authorities on international law. Uh, Paul, uh, polycrisis, is that a good way to describe our world today?
1: Andrew, first, thanks for having me on. It's a real privilege and uh, too, millis- too many syllables, maybe, but I think it's accurate. Uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, it, it's not just the traditional peace and security stuff like war, uh, but long-term threats, uh, economic inequality, global warming, uh, what I call the pollution of cyberspace, uh, the uh, population flows, calling uh, causing immigration that uh, put great stress on societies that receive these movements of people, uh, dysfunctional politics in the rich world, and uh, revisionist states in the rising south. All this is going on, and it's certainly unsettling, and I think we can fairly call it a crisis.
0: Hasn't this always been going on? I'm not necessarily suggesting that we go back to 1911, Churchill's world crisis. Obviously, the First World War was a unique moment in world history. But we've always had information overload, Paul. We've always had uh, wars. We've always had economic inequality. Or is there something different about the world in 2023?
1: Well, I come from Calvinist stock, Andrew. Uh, I totally get the sort of dour take on the world, and I, uh, you know, the poor and suffering have always been with us. That that's certainly true. Uh, I actually feel. Uh, that the 60s were in many ways more alarming than our present time, uh, having lived through the 60s. Uh, uh, So I I don't want to suggest at all that we're going through a unique time. I just think we're coming out of a period, uh, I think particularly the 90s, where there really was a false faith that we'd finally solved all of the big problems in life and that peace and prosperity were our... uh, uh, legacy for the... uh, We even have a term for
0: that, Paul, for Kiyama's End of History. Of course, of course. He had a term, which he claims, he he was on the show a few months ago, he claims he didn't really mean, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but certainly it was embraced by the media to suggest that all these problems had been solved after the Cold War. Little did we know, Paul, little did we know.
1: Yeah, so my story is, I think, more about a wake-up call, and, and trying to think of these various challenges that we're facing as not misbehavior, not as people not getting with the program, but as uh, the result of long-term trends that uh, are related to what makes our life great. Uh, the knowledge economy, I, I think is-, is... Right, so,
0: so the subtitle of the book is The Knowledge Economy and the Battle for the Future, suggesting a different kind of war. We all use this term, Paul, the knowledge economy. What do you mean by it? Why is it such an important word? Or it's it's, it's more than a word. It's three words, uh, a term.
1: Yeah. Uh, So I I first really took a deep dive into international economics and the law tied to it 35-plus years ago. And what struck me was how this world... That was unfolding, and and particularly in the 90s, uh, I think really took off, was so different from the product-based economies that uh, international economies that we had in the 19th century. This isn't cotton anymore, uh, and and mills, and and uh, knowledge has become not just a. Uh, Input in production, but a product itself. It is, uh, and I I think knowledge is increasingly what adds value to things we do when we're behaving in a productive fashion. By productive, I mean, you know, trying to organize our lives to uh, have something to uh, trade with others.
0: You suggested that it's both good and bad. I mean, when we think of the knowledge economy, one company that comes to mind, of course, is Google, uh, multi trillion or historically a multi-trillion dollar company or certainly a trillion dollar company that trades in information. Is that the quintessential knowledge economy company, Paul, or is it broader than that? Is it not just
1: about the internet? Oh, I very strongly believe it's not about the internet. I mean, I, I dance around the national security world and, you know, one of the things about the amazing defense technologies that, uh, technologies that we see is how much of it is knowledge you know of your basic 150 million dollar fighter jet how little of that is stuff you can touch and how much of that is concepts and and uh capabilities that are are basically knowledge based but one of the examples i use in the book is uh containerization i mean the the basic idea uh is a century old uh, now and and uh Uh, not that remarkable, but people in the 1950s sort of put together the idea of, uh, you know, a container that could be transported by different forms of transportation, ships and trains and trucks, uh, and uh, uh, married that to uh, the new technologies for uh, both tracking things and communicating about things. And we had a Remarkable change in international commerce in the 60s and 70s. Uh, uh, only some of which involve computers, you know, the tracking and right. the so data so let, Let's yeah. take
0: that example of the container yeah. economy. Um, I mean, some of that's physical. It's not knowledge. You still have to put stuff into physical containers. I, yeah. I, I take your point. What's the big deal? So what?
1: So I think it's the value added it's the difference between stuff on decks and stuff uh, organized in a way that it can be moved around on sea and land and kept organized and safe uh, uh, and and uh, making it easier to have la- uh, just-in-time production and getting goods to the target markets before they go out of fashion. Uh, you know, all those are ways of – or go stale. So um, it's a
0: it's, – it's a- speedier kind of capitalism you, you come up and the, the the dress company for example the european dress company or uh, a woman clo- woman's clothing retailer zara seems to be uh, a model for that that there the time between concept and coming to market and selling a selling a dress or or, or a pair of trousers has been radically shortened but so what is that why why is that resulting in in, in what you call an, an international crisis uh, the world crisis paul
1: so we're doing great things uh, some of it is as simple as giving people what they want i think the dress example is is nice to that some of it is amaz- amazing technology that saves our lives i, mean, I wrote the book during covid and waiting for the vaccines and and the treatments that come behind the vaccines. Uh, I thought that was an extraordinary accomplishment to get uh, the vaccines that we did get as quickly as we did, uh, really unprecedented. And that's another example of the knowledge economy at work. So it does great stuff and goodness knows I'm in the knowledge production industry myself, but uh, we have not come to grips with the downside. I mean, as we move into a world that sharply divides people based on whether they're good at knowledge or not, Uh, uh, we create divisions that don't correspond to our historic instincts about justice. You know, when when people get privilege based on inheritance, when people get privilege based on skin color or uh, their sex or their gender, uh, we think that's arbitrary and unfair but when people do well because they're smart we say yeah that's the way the world is supposed to work but the flip side of that is we look down on people who don't succeed and there's has been an extraordinary displacement of people um and particularly uh in the rich world uh to their harm uh and and uh and as we hurt them economically, as they lose in the uh, knowledge economy, rather than having solidarity with them and trying to find new ways to give them a place, I- increasingly I think we look at them with scorn. Uh, they become deplorables. And this creates a dynamic that uh, uh, does serious damage to social solidarity, makes our politics dysfunctional, uh, and... and uh, Uh, allows revisionist states, uh, our adversaries in the South, number one, China, uh, to take advantage of this, uh, while China itself is terrified because of the social divisions that it sees in its new society. So we're, we're getting all these great things from the knowledge economy. At the same time, we're terrified about losing our place. And we have a significant percentage of humanity that is deeply resentful, and they vote.
0: That was almost a Freudian slip when you said resentable. Uh, (laughs) That was the Hillary slip. Yeah, yeah. Is the problem, Paul, in the way we talk about this stuff, with our cult of innovation and our embrace of companies like Zara and Amazon and Google, the the, the cult of uh, n- the knowledge-based culture. Um, is, is that the problem, is that we're not telling the full story?
1: I think the full story we're not telling is, uh, on the one hand, some of our successes are not, some of the successes of these economies are really just quick Turnover things rather than it, it remains to be seen whether they're they're terribly useful there's a lot of just quick entertainment satisfaction that we're generating uh which is fun but it's not clear we're making people's lives better but i think the bigger problem is uh it gives us more and more opportunities to look down on people who aren't good at what we do and and you know uh uh, I, I mean, you know, contrast this with uh, uh, in America and certainly the World War II generation where there was this great leveling uh, uh, force in the draft uh, in, in the war economy. And and, and and people came out of that war, uh, you know, still with deep injustices. Uh, 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 the fate of, of black veterans was quite different from white. Uh, women were expected to start popping out babies as soon as the war ended. Uh, But still, I think there was some steps towards social solidarity at that time that we've really lost our way over the last 30, 40, 50 years. And I think the knowledge economy has something to do with that.
0: Do you see the knowledge economy as triggering this crisis of democracy, the rise of authoritarian leaders from Orbán and Putin to Xi and Trump? Is there a connection between this nostalgia for an imaginary past and making America great again, and uh, a bewilderment about the truth of where we're really at?
1: Yeah, I mean, I the immediate procuring cause for me to take up this project were the twin events of 2016, uh, Brexit and uh, the Trump election, uh, both. Taking a lot of people by surprise, including me, uh, and representing, I thought, not a one-off, but really a, a fairly fundamental change. Uh, and and then the data came along. I think the case in Deaton research, uh, you know, uh, yeah,
0: I been on the show, he won of course the Nobel Prize for his work.
1: Ex- exactly, and I his wife
0: uh, Andy, Kate, uh, yeah, who yeah. they both teach at Princeton University.
1: Yeah yeah. Uh both superb economists, uh both uh, at Princeton. Uh I I and and uh their their first paper was pre-Trump election. The book came out in the aftermath of Trump and they saw a really tight fit between the Uh, objective indicia of social dysfunction and despair, you know, uh, Uh, Okay, so
0: Paul, you're you're certainly not the first person to argue this, or the last. I understand. You're a law professor, and this book is The World Crisis and International Law. What's the role of law in this crisis? And are you saying that this polycrisis, this world problem of inequality and bewilderment about our current historical state, is the law the way out? Can... Can can law help us fix this? Is that the argument in the book?
1: So the first part of the argument, Andrew, is that law is the canary in the coal mine. Uh, some of the in- indicators that we are in a very deep, serious problem—it's not just some bad luck and bad events—is the assaults on law. Uh, and and why is that? I think Saul when it, uh, I'm sorry, law when it works is uh, a key indicator of social trust. Uh, that uh, law works because people think it's a good thing and people think it's a good thing because it improves their lives. And, and is this be-
0: assault coming just from the right? From Oh
1: no. Oh no, I, I, I think we, we are seeing symmetrical uh, uh, attacks on uh, uh you know, the idea that there's anything sustaining about our institution, the idea that there's anything fair or even workable about our institutions. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think at least in my little world of, of, of law, the voices about how law is rigged comes at least as loudly from the left as the right.
0: Paul, uh, usually when I do these interviews, I can pretty much guess the politics of my guests. They make it pretty clear. With you, I'm not actually, to be honest, I'm not, and when I say to be honest, of course, I'm always honest, though I try to be, um, I'm not sure of your politics. Are you coming at this from the left or the right or from another direction?
1: So, Andrew, I regard myself as a committed nonpartisan with politics. Uh, You know, I I came out of the national security uh, establishment, uh, I mean, that was my father's uh, world, the world I grew up in. And and in that world, you're supposed to uh, uh, try and serve your country no matter whose politics are prevailing for the moment. Uh, with a, you're least- interested
0: in politics and you see the crisis in political terms. Yeah. Are you nostalgic for perhaps no. that, bip- uh, that imaginary, at least, bipartisan age? I mean...
1: No, I'm not nostalgic at all. I think the world we have is the world we live in. I, I, my own history is boring, but I've had my heart broken twice. I was a radical in the 60s, and I thought we were transforming our society in powerful ways that uh, required imagination. And, and uh, uh, by the end of the 60s, I felt those projects had really uh, pretty much failed. Don't and, well,
0: and, the, and, we have hearts to be broken, though, isn't that? The human condition? Of
1: course, of course. And, and then I made the thing, mistake. And in,
0: you're willing to change your mind and acknowledge that, I think, is yeah. also extremely human, well, but also attractive.
1: My second heartbreak was Russia. You know, I was uh, there a lot in the 80s and 90s. And and uh, there was a moment at the end of the 80s when I thought they were really going to pull out of the massive burden of their terrible history and make something of themselves. I was even having conversations with people uh, in the Russian government about how uh, you, you have to forget about this oil. You don't want to be Saudi Arabia. You want to look at what Ireland is doing. Be a tech center. You've got brilliant people. Why mm. aren't you exploiting that resource? And, and then in the 90s, it just all fell apart. It was terrible. So I, I, I am a happy person. I, I've been. Well, you seem uh, very a great well, uh, I am. Well, um,
0: do you see AI now? I mean, it's it's. We've done many many shows on um, artificial intelligence, particularly these days with OpenAI and ChatGPT. It seems we really now are in the AI age. Are you? Do you see AI as the? the climax, so to speak, of the knowledge economy representing all the very best and worst aspects of of the knowledge economy?
1: I'm not sure, but I kind of doubt it. I I think it's we're having an AI moment. And I I, I think it's a a, to me, it feels more like a bubble than uh, uh, the real uh, attainment of something powerful. I mean, amazing things are going on in that industry and I think uh, what the algorithms teach us are extremely important, you know, what, what, you know no matter what you're doing. But, the, uh, you know, the anxieties about the artificial intelligence taking over from people, uh, I think is pretty exaggerated. Uh, OK, well,
0: let's go back to the book, Paul, um, The World Crisis and International Law, The Knowledge Economy and the Battle for the Future. You've laid out the problems which many people observe. You've done it in a, in a particularly, I think, thoughtful way. How does international law help, or how do we get out of this crisis?
1: Well, I think step one is to just recognize that what we've been doing isn't working and, and uh, that we need to take a step back from the international law perspective. I think international law is more a target than something that does bad things, but I think... You know, many of the institutions that were built up, particularly in the '90s, have uh, become targets for populist resentment. And the truth is, many of them haven't performed as they should. They uh, haven't. Give me what the, their the,
0: I, I, I assume you're talking as a lawyer about the Supreme Court, also international organizations.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you know, the the things that really got beefed up in the '90s, the WTO, the World Trade Organization. Uh, The European Union uh, was, you know, a remake of what had been the European economic communities, Uh, the various economic, I'm sorry, the European communities. Um, You know, by the end of the 90s, we had the International Criminal Court, uh, the idea that we could have these top-down institutions that would save us from ourselves and spread virtue. And and, and there are many others, but those are probably the most... And these
0: institutions, in your mind, are causes and consequences of the knowledge economy i assume they were created by knowledge economy workers and and staff by them and manifestations of their power and ideology is that
1: fair and they reflect the values of people who succeed in the knowledge economy i mean uh knowledge skills knowledge uh uh, products that are sold around the world are more valuable than products that are sold uh, in, in one place. Are there
0: individuals who sort of encapsulate this, I think, of a, a Tony Blair or a Bill Clinton?
1: I, I think we had a uh, Blair and Clinton. Uh, I think we really had a string of American presidents from Bill Clinton to George W. Bush, to Barack Obama, who were very committed to the project. I, I think the difference between Blair and Cameron was so small that it was hard to find space between them uh, in, in, uh, on these issues. Uh, putting aside, you know, cultural issues, uh, uh, I think on the basic, you know, the law that sustains the world economy, uh, the vision was more was better. And if some people got displaced, some people fell behind, uh, you know, we thought we would do right by them, but also shame on them for being stupid. These are all in their own
0: way. and, And I think the core of this, and this has come up a lot in our conversations on the show recently, is the question of technocracy, which is never really addressed. Do you see technocracy as the problem or the solution or both? Because Clinton and Gore and and, and Blair and Cameron, they're all in their own way technocrats. They're all fleeing from political ideology. They all think of themselves, I think, as living um, at the end of history.
1: Yeah, so I think it's the confusion of technocracy and meritocracy. I mean, the term meritocracy was, you know, developed by lord young back in the 50s and i think and he meant
0: it satirically of course he, he wasn't very keen on the concept exactly he meant it in a dystopian way
1: yeah I, I i think his insights were very powerful and and uh i think the technocrats are uh meritocrats with a, a more veneer of science uh behind we've them. had a number of
0: people on the show paul who either defend meritocracy like Adam Wal- um, uh, 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 Adrian Waldridge or others who, uh, who are very critical of America's meritocracy. Are you saying that the issue is not being for or against meritocracy? Is, is there a bigger problem?
1: Well, I think the problem is confusing success doing useful things with being virtuous. Uh, I mean, I, I think yeah. there's more to virtue than simply being successful. It's based on having some kind of connection with people, understanding how much depends on luck. Uh, rather right. Again, right, yeah, no, no, Daniel yeah.
0: Markovitz has been on the show. He also suggests that our, our meritocrats are miserable. He teaches at Yale Law School. You yeah, teach no, I, I know his it's Are your kids miserable, Paul? I'm a very happy guy. But the people you teach.
1: Uh, So, you know, UVA, you talked about it being a beautiful place. I think we're an unusually happy place, actually. But I I think, uh, you know, I don't just teach at UVA. I I, I have opportunities to be at a number of places. And I, I think there is a certain malaise in our elite law schools, people who are having the best opportunities one can possibly imagine on this planet are uh too many of the young people and and the professors who uh teach them are uh overwhelmed with guilt despair anxiety uh you know it's as if the expectations are crushing them rather than just marveling at the great things we do and i think part of that is a lack of connection with
0: uh, you, you're you, you you you're you're very very smart. You clearly thought this stuff through very carefully. You, one of America's top law professors, you've said you. You don't like politics, and yet at the same time you're critical of a, an a end of history ideology that suggests that politics is something in the past. Don't we need politics? Don't we need new political movements? Are so able to understand this crisis, and Uh, articulate the crisis in a a way that makes sense, not in the 20th century, but in the 21st century. I mean, surely we need some stuff here that's going to break some eggs, shall we say. I mean, this is not an easy crisis to get out of.
1: I I agree. I have nothing against politics. I I don't do politics because it's not my skill set and my, you know... Uh, it's my legacy, if you will, uh, uh, from my family. Uh, uh, but I, I strongly believe people should partic- find some ways to contribute to society and politics as part of that. We need a politics that is based, I think, on less uh, uh, humbug. Uh, I'm very anti-humbug. And, and, yeah, well, we're uh, all
0: anti-humbug, Paul. But, uh, but what exactly is anti-humbug? politics. Um, I assume you don't like either the Make America Great movement or the, the Bernie Sander nostalgia for, for, for the certainties of the industrial age. So what do we need? Who, who, who can we point to as someone who's going to lead us out of what you call in your book, our world crisis?
1: So what I see myself doing is having a story to tell Anyone who comes to power and wants to say, you know, I can fake my way through this only so far. We really have to grapple with these things. And I think first you try and identify the problems, the challenges, and then you try incrementally ground up learning by doing the fine solutions uh, in an old-fashioned way. Yeah, I mean, that sounds way. very
0: sensible, very realistic. I'm not going to criticize that. But I'm still not – you know, you on the one hand, you're talking about this crisis of inequality, yeah. uh, of the knowledge economy. But, but what needs to happen? Give me some concrete next steps as a conclusion to this conversation. When people read your book or listen to your lectures, what do you want to happen, Paul?
1: So I – after I try to get people to focus on how serious the problem is, I try to give them some hope, which is uh, you know, a very boring idea that uh, pragmatic, uh, science-based, compassionate solutions to problems uh, uh, can exist, and a few examples. I mean, so uh, you know, many people think are, perhaps greatest long-term challenge on this planet is climate change. Uh, And uh, uh, there are certainly people uh, who uh, are committed to just despairing about that and and engaging in dramatic actions. I I think that uh, there are plenty of uh, opportunities to come up with interesting and valuable contributions to the problem. I mean, I, I think climate change is based on three technological problems. Uh, you know, decarbonization uh, in the production process, uh, extracting carbon from the atmosphere, and coming up with technologies to monitor uh, uh, okay. so, that so we're actually doing easy. that.
0: Right, and again, you're not a. I mean, this is not a book about the climate crisis. Um, let's end with a couple of again concrete. I, I'm looking for more concrete stuff from you, Paul. We did a show with an ex UN power player Roland Rich used to run their democracy fund he has a new book the United Nations as Leviathan I think he's very much in your camp in terms of the crisis of institutions he thinks that the United Nations needs to be reinvented that that could be the fix we also had someone on the show last year who talked about the need for a science party um perhaps you might end with those. Do we need more or less international organizations? And, and might we need a more formal technocratic
1: party, a science-based party? I think that we need uh, to downscale our international organizations uh, to get them at a level where they can start uh, experimenting rather than insisting on some rather Uh, grand ideas. I mean, take the war in Ukraine. You know, many people are talking about uh, creating, uh, extending the international criminal court to deal with Russian war crimes. Russian war crimes are atrocious. Uh, We have to deal with them some way, but I don't think creating a new international institution is the way that we're going to deal with that. I think that has to be done by individual countries, sometimes helping each other out. And, and I think that is my theme, you know, sometimes international law has to get out of the way so that countries can do the right thing, show people what the right thing is and uh, encourage copycats.